My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're familiar with the Bible, then perhaps when you hear those words, your first thought is to go to the final groanings of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. One of the last things he said before his death. But those words were actually first uttered almost exactly a thousand years before by another man known as King of the Jews. And in his death throes, Jesus borrowed those words from the psalm that we're going to study this morning, Psalm 22. So as we begin, it's worth asking a very simple question. Of everything Jesus could have said, in his moments of greatest agony, as his body is racked with pain, why would these words come to his mind? Jesus knew dozens upon dozens of psalms, doubtless having memorized them as a young boy in the synagogues. Why would he think of this one? We'll go to that and try to answer that question towards the end of this sermon. But first, perhaps we should ask a a simpler and more prior question. Why would David think of words like these? Or perhaps even more personal, why would any person of faith think to say words like these? They're pretty desperate, aren't they? Pretty dark almost hopeless. In a moment of false piety, we might even be tempted to say, well, you know, David, that's, that's a little extreme. Don't you know that, that God is everywhere? God hasn't forsaken you. And yet, David, the man after God's own heart, and even Christ, the son of the living God, they chose these words. Why? Well, I think the answer to that question gets to the heart of human experience. And it tells us how to get through suffering when God feels gone. So if you would, turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 22. And let me just read verses 1 and 2 as we begin together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Now before we see where David is going to take us in this text, I just want to take a moment to reflect on the depth of David's feelings here. Look at what he's saying. God feels so far away, he can't even sleep at night anymore. The darkness has descended so much that David... The great psalmist who writes so many songs about how good God is and how close God is really truly believes in this moment that God, it feels like he's completely gone. David is in a time where he feels completely forsaken by God. And before we go any further, we have to acknowledge that as troubling as this thought is, This is a normal experience in the Christian life. If you have not yet experienced a season like this, you will. Suffering is something we see all throughout Scripture. All of God's greatest saints experience seasons in the wilderness. 
And Christians throughout time have described exactly this, that throughout the Christian life, there are seasons when it seems like God has simply checked out. This is real. And we can imagine why in David's life he might have felt like this. It's been a, a few months now since we've been in the books of Samuel, but you can imagine, you can remember the basic moves of David's life. As a young man, he had loved God, pursued God. He becomes a man after God's own heart as a young shepherd boy. And then God-anointed things start happening in his life, right? He's anointed by God's prophet. He's elevated to the king's court. He slays a giant. He marries the princess. The end, happy ending, good to go. No. It's after David has had a taste of all of this victory that he then experiences incredible defeat. He is falsely accused. He is lied about. He's cursed. He has an attempted murder. And then he has to run for his life. And so you can easily see why David would say, God, where have you gone? You used to be so present. You were working so much in my life. Where have you gone? And notice that not only is God seemingly absent from his life, but this is far deeper. He is seemingly absent from David's prayers. He says, God, I, I cry by day and by night, but you do not answer. God is not only taking no action, he is giving no explanation. And friends, this is a very honest and real experience of Christian suffering. In our deepest and darkest times, when we feel most purposeless, often God gives no direct answer. One of the fearful realizations of growth in maturity is that experiences like this are common in the Christian life. We will go through seasons of suffering. And when we step into these seasons of suffering our reaction will probably be very much like David's. We have a lot of questions. God, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is this happening to me? What did I do? Was it the way I parented? Was it some kind of sin that I've been continuing in? How, how long will this take? God, maybe I can endure it for a day or a week, but don't let it carry into next year. God, God, what is this for? Maybe if I just knew what you were trying to do in my heart, then, then maybe I could endure under it, but I, I don't understand right now. When we step into suffering, we often want answers, and here David wants the same thing. He begins the psalm with, why? God, maybe if you just told me why, then I would get it. Questions identify our pain more directly than any statement David could have made. God, why? And the interesting thing is, in this psalm, David isn't going to get an answer. But I want to propose to you, as we walk through this together, he's actually going to get something better. David isn't going to get an answer, but he is going to get a path to walk. You see, suffering is unavoidable both because we live in a broken world afflicted by evil and because God ordains it. He's designed the Christian life to function like this. 
Paul tells the people in Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. God has designed the Christian life to have built in suffering as part of the plan. So no matter how much you prepare, no matter how much you study or know, suffering will come. And when it does, there's no way to sidestep it. There's no way to outthink it. There's no way to to deke or dodge it. You have to go through. And I want to propose to you this morning that David shows us a path through. Let me show you what I mean as we dive in. You, of course, know that the Psalms are poetry. Most of us probably don't read that much poetry anymore. We get our poetry, I used to say, we get our poetry from the radio. Nobody knows what the radio is anymore, so we get our poetry from Spotify, right? We get our poetry from music. The word psalm literally means song. And some of the psalms even give instructions on who was to sing them and what instruments were to play them as you go through them. In fact, this psalm has a, uh, a prescription that most, most uh, scholars don't even know exactly what it means in the ESV, which is the Pew Bible, it says, according to the doe of the dawn, the, the best guess is that maybe this was a psalm meant to be sung early in the morning or something like that. It doesn't really matter. I think the content of the psalm is clear regardless. The challenge is, even though we all have songs in our lives constantly, even as we were driving into church this morning, Kristen and I were listening to songs on the radio, that we don't think that often about how poetry works, how it's put together. And even more so, when we're reading something like the psalm, which is Hebrew poetry, it doesn't use exactly the same set of literary tools that we're used to in our songs. So instead of auditory tools like rhyme, which is the most common tool in English poetry, far often Hebrew poetry uses structural tools like juxtaposition or the arrangement of topics in such a way that the form drives the poem. That sounds really esoteric, but it's a lot easier if we just take a look at it. Now, before you freak out and think, oh goodness, that's his sermon outline, (laughs) it's not. You don't have to write any of that down. If you want to take a picture, I'd be happy to send you this afterwards. Don't worry about it. We're just going to take a very quick look and see what David is doing with this psalm. You'll notice that David David is actually breaking the psalm down into mirrored topics that point to the center. Of course, we start out with David's distress and David's celebration. We go on to David looking back versus David looking forward. David is despised, and then he's not despised. Scholars call this chiasm. You don't have to know what that means or remember it at all. You can see very easily from the picture what David is doing. He uses these mirroring ideas to point us to the center. But what's at the center of the psalm? The dust of death. David uses the whole psalm to point to this central idea of death because it's something that he cannot avoid and he can't stop thinking about. But even more than an arrow pointing us to the center, there's something else interesting about this psalm. David begins in distress, and at the very center of the psalm is death, and then he begins to ascend back out of death. It's a little easier to see if we just flip it on its side. This isn't just an arrow, it's a, it's a valley. A valley through which we have to walk. Beginning at distress, going down into death, and only then beginning to see the light again. Even more than a valley, we could see this as a resurrection. Death before rebirth. 
despair before life. Only then, worship and celebration. Hope after despair. You see, there's no way to avoid suffering, but David is showing a way to go through it in faith. And so as we go through this psalm, I want to present to us this interpretive idea that the psalm is a road map through the valley of suffering that leads us to the foot of the cross. You can't avoid it, you have to walk it, but you can use a map. You know, the Psalms often use the idea of suffering as a road through the valley. Perhaps your, your thoughts go to the very next Psalm, Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And Christians throughout time have seized upon that kind of imagery to describe what suffering is like. In the great book, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, he describes in very old and archaic English to our ears, that every Christian must walk through the slough of despond. Sometimes it's just good to say old English. (laughs) He literally means the swamp of despair, the swamp of depression. Every Christian goes through some season of life on their journey to the celestial city where they have to walk through a season that just feels like a mire of desertion. Upon the death of his wife, C.S. Lewis wrote a reflection on his own grief. He even published it under a false name. The publishers didn't release the fact that it was written by C.S. Lewis until after his death. It's a very insightful book, kind of a shocking book if you're used to reading Lewis, who is so put together in his prose, has such beautiful thoughts and ideas. And in this book, you can see his, his absolute grief, and he describes it as completely disorienting. He says, grief... It's like a long valley, a winding valley where any bend may reveal a totally new landscape. Grief can be like feeling completely lost in the valley. Suffering in the Christian life isn't something we can avoid. It's not something we can outthink. It's something that we have to journey through. And so let's walk this morning with David Not through points in a sermon, but through steps on a journey to see where he's going to take us. And the main idea this morning is when God feels gone, hope in what he has done. So let's read going on from verse 3. We read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We saw how David is crying out day and night. He says that God feels completely gone, God feels completely lost. And then he contradicts himself. We're going to see three times in the psalm, David will sort of fight back against his despair. And the first time happens in verse 3. He says, oh my God, I cry day and night, but you do not answer, but I find no rest. And then verse 3, yet. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. So we start with our first step on this journey. When God feels gone, he hasn't changed. Notice what David does here. He is in utter despair. From his perspective, God has left. God is far away. And yet David starts by acknowledging that though his circumstances have changed, he has moved, God hasn't moved. This is the first step on his journey. When our life seems in complete upheaval, when everything seems rocked to and fro, God hasn't changed. Though David doesn't have a clue where he is, 
Like C.S. Lewis, he is lost in that valley where every corner you come around, it seems like a completely new vista. You don't know what's going on or where you are. David acknowledges God hasn't moved. Where is God? Well, David says he's where he always was. He's enthroned in the praises of his people. He hasn't moved. Not only has God not moved, but his character hasn't changed either. Look at verse 4. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So David acknowledges not only has God not moved, but his, his track record hasn't changed. His character hasn't changed. David points back to things that God has done in the past to kind of recall to his soul that God has a track record of salvation. This is a common practice throughout the Old Testament to repeat God's good works. It's something that I think as Christians we often fail to do. But think of all of those great songs that pop up in the narratives of the Old Testament. Like Miriam's song after crossing the Red Sea or Solomon's song when he establishes the temple. What do they all do? Well, they all point back to what God has done. They just sing about how God saves his people, how God redeems his people, how he always shows up for the poor and the needy and those lowly in heart. They remind the hearers of who God is and what he's done in the past. And so first, friends, I would just encourage us, this should be a tool in our arsenal when we feel completely lost in grief and depression. We should begin rehearsing to ourselves what kind of God he is, what he has done for his people. Start to think through, what's his track record? What has God done in the past about oppression and famine and war and death? How does God relate to people who are lowly and lost? What kind of track record does he have? Over and over again, we see he saves his people. He saves his people. He saves his people. We can use stories of God's past faithfulness in his word to shore up our hearts, to begin to build a foundation. The first thing that David does is he looks to God's unchanging character because it's going to be the foundation of everything else that's going to come in the psalm. God hasn't moved. His promises, his character, his plans, they haven't budged because God is the one thing in the universe that doesn't change. And friends, this really is the theological foundation upon which the whole rest of this psalm is built. Think about it. Why do we experience grief? Why do we experience, experience suffering? It's almost always because of loss and change. A beloved family member moves on. Friendships break down. Relationships change. Kids drift away. It's almost always some kind of loss and change that sends our lives into upheaval, and the solid foundation that can give us hope is that God doesn't. His character is immutable. He's not moving. He's the one thing in the universe that all of those longings point towards. The one thing that doesn't change. So David starts here. Even though my circumstances are in complete upheaval, God hasn't changed. But friends, I want you to note that this is just the first step on the journey. That point by itself probably won't give you instant relief. It certainly doesn't for David. David has more things to cry out, more steps to walk on this journey. 
Simply saying, God's still there, probably won't take away your pain in a season of depression and fear. But it is the first step on this journey. So David begins with saying that God hasn't changed, but then he has to argue with himself a little bit more. Look at verse 6. He says God hasn't changed in verses 3, 4, and 5, but in verse 6, the depression seeks back in. He says, but I am a worm, not a man. Look at David's wrestling. He, he clings to something that he knows is true. God hasn't changed, but then he falls back into despair. God hasn't changed, but I have. God hasn't changed, but I'm a worm. God won't look on me. Maybe he saved other people in the past, but you don't understand how far gone I am. He uses that word worm. He's describing a maggot. Something that the Israelites would have encountered only in the midst of death and decay. David is saying he's as good as dead. He's the lowliest life form, unworthy of God's notice. This pattern that David has of arguing with his pain is so true to the human experience of grief, right? We acknowledge God's character. Maybe we even acknowledge his saving work in the lives of others. And then in the midst of our pain, our present suffering seems so difficult that it feels like we are the exception. There's no way he's coming for us. Maybe he saved other people. Maybe he's even working in other areas of my life. But this spot that is causing me so much pain, that's a goner. God just isn't going to work there. David seems to say something similar. It's almost as if going into verse 7, he says, just look around. He says, I am scorned by mankind. I am despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David recounts their words, and in the context of this part of the psalm, he almost half believes them. He's listening to his enemies say, oh, you trust in God, do you? How's that working out for you? Oh, you believe in this invisible God that you can't taste or touch or feel or manipulate. That seems to be working really great, doesn't it? And David half believes them. He says, God, I know you saved our fathers, but I'm a worm. You're not saving me. There's a wrestling match that's happening in this passage between David and his pain as he tries to yank back some truth into his circumstance. So he starts to fall into the words of his enemies. He hears their lies. Oh, do you trust God, do you? He tries to fight back again in verse 9. He says, yet, another time, he's arguing at this pain, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breath, breast. On you I was cast from my birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Three times in this psalm, David is dragged down, and three times he comes back up for air. Fighting for some kind of truth he can cling to. Fighting for something against the despair. He says, God isn't going to come. I'm too far gone. I'm a worm. Yet, yet, remember what he has done for me before. Friends, this is a beautiful picture of what walking in faith in the midst of despair looks like. Walking in faith in the midst of despair does not look like feeling good all the time. It does not look like having perspective all of the time. It looks like a fight for faith. It looks like David arguing with his despair, 
fighting for perspective. So that brings us to our second point. When God feels gone, remember what He has done for you. When God feels gone, look back. Bring things to mind that He has specifically done for you. Remember, this isn't your first rodeo with God. This isn't the first season He's brought you through. Even if it's the darkest, begin to argue with your pain. David does this. He goes back to his birth. It's like he has nothing else to cling to. He can't see any positive part of what God is putting him through. Right? That's the, the lie of positivity thinking that our culture sometimes uses. Well, just, just look for the silver lining in everything. Well, that's great. There's, a, there's an element of truth to that, of like seeing the good in the world that God has created. But we do come to things in our lives where you just can't see a silver lining. And when that happens, David goes back. And he has to dig so deep in this passage that he goes back to his birth. He says, if nothing else, you created me. Even if everything else in my life seems washed out, worthless, you made me. And that's something. He gets this little hint that maybe God still has something to do with him, because why would God have created him to throw him away? He just has this little seed of it. He is arguing with his pain. The great 19th century medical doctor and pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, calls this talking to yourself. Right? Normally we would say talking to yourself is a sign that maybe you're not all right in the head. He says that this is actually a good spiritual practice. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? He says, take those thoughts that come to you moment by moment when you wake up in the morning. They, you have not originated them, but they started talking to you. They started to bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment, speaking of David, was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. He says... Why are you downcast, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been depressing him and crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment, and I will speak to you. David is saying to himself, as his self is talking to him, Self, remember what God has done. He has to dig down deep to get there. But he remembers that he was made by God. He was brought forth by God. And it's that little tenuous tendril of hope that leads David to his first actual request in the entire psalm in verse 11. He says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. For the first time, David makes an actual request in this entire prayer. And look at the foundation of his request. David doesn't say in this psalm, God, come because I'm righteous. Come because you've anointed me. Come because I'm a good king and Saul will be a bad one. He doesn't have anything offered to God. He even, this isn't even a foxhole prayer, right? He's not saying, save me now and I'll give you everything. No. He calls on God and the foundation of his call is simple. I am helpless and no one else can help. David's pain has brought him to the end of himself. 
and he cries out to, the, to God on the simple basis that God has a track record of helping helpless people. Nothing else. Friends, this is the turning point. This is the beginning of hope. When we stop bargaining with God and cry out for help on the basis of his character, not ours. This is how God saves. Not when we come to him with what we've gotten done and ask him for a little help. Not when we come to him with our list of righteousness and say, this is pretty good, won't you take it? But when we admit that in the words of Jonathan Edwards, we have nothing to bring except the sin that got us into this situation. When we cast ourselves on Christ, we repent of sin and say, you are the only one who can save. That's when we are ready to be saved. We have to get to a point where we despair of ourselves. We have to despair of ourselves before we turn to God, or we simply won't actually turn to God. We'll always have our little bit of self left over that we brought to the table. So a simple question this morning is, have you ever truly despaired of yourself? Or are you always trying to relate to God with just that little bit of self left that you think you've pulled yourself up by at least one bootstrap? One of the reasons God allows seasons of suffering is to help kill that part of ourself. We have to die to self to come to Christ. And suffering strips us of the illusion, and it is an illusion, that any of us are a self-made man or woman. What did you have that you were not given? So have you given up on your own righteousness? On your own ability to work your way to God? Have you realized like David that you are like a worm, as good as dead, nothing left? and nothing to offer to God before His holy law. That's the point when you're truly prepared for grace. From here, at this point, when David finally realizes, I've got nothing left except the tiniest hope that God by Himself, not because of anything in me, but because of who He is and what He's like, He's a saving kind of God. When he finally gets to that point, this is where the entire psalm turns. And David begins to cry out to God. He starts with this description of his enemies. I won't read the entire thing, but you see what he describes there in verse 12. He says, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. It's a dry bit of, of clay. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. Verse 16, the dogs encompass me, and a company of evildoers surrounds me. They pierce my hands and feet. The ancient pictures in this poetry probably seem a little distant to us, but David is simply using the kinds of metaphors common in his day to describe the fear that he feels. Imagine facing down a wild animal with nothing but hand tools, Right? then something as simple as a cow or a bull is suddenly made incredibly powerful and scary. David describes his terror like ravening lions, a pack of wild dogs encircling. All of this oppression is causing his very body to give out. He feels like his strength is poured out. He's exhausted. His mouth is dry. 
His skin is sallow and stretched. Friends, this isn't mere hyperbole for David. He's acknowledging that spiritual pain truly affects our bodies. David's affliction is causing him to lose sleep, get the shakes, to break down. Friends, our bodies and souls are united. One cannot help but affect the other. David is describing here something that we might describe as akin to a panic attack. And I don't say that to psychologize the Bible, but rather to point out that the Bible actually speaks to these sorts of things. Right? If you experience those things, you're not alone. The Bible speaks to them. God knows your condition, and he has spoken to the full depth of your suffering. David moves here from simply dwelling on his pain to enumerating his pain, listing it for God. Too often, I think, in our pain, we spend a lot of time dwelling on our pain and less time actually engaging God in prayer with our pain. It's easy to stew in our minds over and over again because because it's real. It's true pain. It is actually afflicting us. And so we can go around and around and around on verses 1 and 2 with never taking the further steps in this psalm, thinking about our pain, going over it again and again and again, rather than using all of that energy the pain is generating to turn towards God and start pouring it out at his feet. David here is a model. He doesn't hold back. He gives God the full list. He cries out. He uses metaphors. He, you have to imagine as he's describing how his body is falling apart, how everyone has left him, that there are tears in his eyes as he's writing the psalm. He says, look, God, look at my enemies. Look at my condition. Do you know how this feels, God? Do you know how this makes your mouth feel? Do you know how this makes your skin feel when you've been suffering for this long? I think we might be tempted to Try to be a bit more pious in our prayers. Maybe hold God back from the full throat of our, of our agony. Yet David gives us a tool for suffering. In moments of extreme pain, we shouldn't turn in on ourselves. We should turn out to God and pour it at His feet. Enumerate our pain. Explain to Him our suffering. Peter calls it in 1 Peter, casting our cares on Him. He uses that word almost like forcing them out, throwing them at His feet. Because he cares for us. Because he is the God who hears the cry of the helpless. Friends, God wants to hear your suffering. He wants to hear you cry out to him. He is the God who cares about such things. And the very act of casting cares at the feet of God is part of the process. It's a step on the path. So when God is gone, cry out to him. It's part of the process. It's how we walk through suffering. We should bring it to his feet. Yes, God knows our prayers before he hears them. Just like you know what's wrong with your child when they stub their toe, it doesn't mean that you don't want to hear their cries. God wants to hear our cries. He wants to be with us in our affliction. And friends, pain is an invitation to meet with God. It's an opportunity to pour out our souls before Him and to be known by Him and to know what kind of God He is in response to pain. Once David has laid this foundation of God's character and he's embraced God's actions in the past now, it's only then that he finds the strength to hope in God in the future. You can't take any steps out of this journey. You have to go through it, down to the dust of death, enumerating our pain to God. And only then does David look up 
And in verse 19, he says, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He finally acknowledges, now that he's poured out his pain, that there is something bigger and better going on. So point four, when God feels gone, remember what he is doing. In these next few verses, from verses 22 to 31, David is going to look up from his situation entirely. Suddenly the psalm turns from David's circumstances to something much, much bigger, something beyond even David's life. So he says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. All who fear the Lord, praise him. All offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe, all you offspring of Israel. Look at uh, verse 27. David goes beyond Israel. He begins saying that this message that God is a saving God, he says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn from the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. David is no longer just looking at his own story. He now realizes that God saving him is part of something so much bigger. Something David will come out of this present suffering to preach about. David turns from a sufferer into a preacher. He says, God isn't going to just save me. He's going to save Israel. And then as he contemplates that, he says, wait, God isn't just going to save Israel. He is going to save the whole world by his future king. Friends, this is where this text comes into flower. Through his suffering by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David has a glimpse of what this is all really about. The real answer to that why question. You see, it was no mere whim that caused Jesus to quote this psalm in his suffering. Look at the words of the psalm again and think of that day on Calvary. All who see me mock me. They wag their heads. They say he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments, and for my clothing they cast lots. You lay me in the dust of death. In the mystery of inspiration, the Holy Spirit moved the heart of David to use words that express his own experience, and at the same time, perfectly prefigure the much greater suffering of Jesus who would feel God's abandonment in bearing the sins of the world. If you go back and read through the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, each of these events takes place in the life of Jesus literally pierced in his hands and his feet, thirsting, hearing the crying voices saying, you claimed you were the son of God, let God deliver you. Which means, friends, Jesus walked this path too. On that fateful day when Jesus cried out the first words of this psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus too was experiencing what we experience. And on the lips of Jesus, those words are puzzling, even troubling. What does it mean for the Son of God to be God-forsaken? Let's take a moment to step back and dive into the deep end of the theological pool to just take a moment to say what this doesn't mean, right? Jesus is God. Jesus isn't part of God. He is God. He is the eternal second person of the one God who is one being in three persons. 
The three persons are distinct, but they aren't separate. So when Jesus was forsaken, the Trinity didn't split. Jesus didn't stop being God. The one true living God was undivided, and as Jesus hung on the cross in agony, in the deep mystery of the divine person, he was still holding the universe together by the word of his power. And neither did the father suddenly check out of the relationship with his son. This was their plan, perfectly executed. The divine son offered himself to the father by the spirit, Hebrews tells us. The cross was one of the greatest expressions of their unity, not their division. And yet, as we cling to those theological guardrails, don't let the deep mystery soften the reality of the agony of Christ bearing our sins. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. His soul makes an offering for our guilt. In that moment, Jesus was feeling the full weight of the Father's wrath for everything we have done. Every time the Father should have turned on us in disgust and rejection and righteous anger was laid on him. In his humanity, he did not feel not only the Father's absence, but the Father's wrath. As the sin-bearing sacrifice, he was not only forsaken, but smitten by God and afflicted. Donald McLeod writes this, When he cried, there was no countering voice. This time, no word came from heaven to remind him that he was God's son and greatly loved. No dove came down to assure him of the Spirit's presence and ministry. No angel came to strengthen him. He died as a sinner for sinners. He died a forsaken man. You see, Jesus wasn't just rejected like us. He was rejected for us. He was rejected so that you don't have to be. Friends, the great hope of this psalm is that it is about something far greater than our suffering. It points us to the Savior who suffered for us. He was abandoned so that we never will be. This is the great hope of suffering. The hope that when God feels gone, friends, Jesus fulfilled this psalm. Hanging on a cross to bear the sins of the world so that he could save his people. And as the psalm says, it was he who was raised from the dust to gather a congregation from the ends of the earth, to call them his brothers and sisters, to declare his kingship to the ends of the earth so that all might be saved. Friends, this is the hope in suffering. Christ has beaten death. He will gather a people to himself. He has led in resurrection that has earned a resurrection for us. Friends, our deepest suffering is meant as a path that points us to Christ. It reminds us of his suffering for us and points us to the hope of what is to come. So as we conclude this morning, I just want to ask a few questions to help us process this. First off, where are you in this valley? For some of us, we haven't seen that valley yet. We've maybe hit some bumps in the road, but we haven't entered the darkness. And I just encourage you, prepare your hearts. The Bible teaches us that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. It's not avoidable. It's just a question of how prepared you will be when it comes. 
For some of you, you might be in an incredibly difficult time. Battling anxiety, depression, or grief. That's a normal part of the Christian life. You're on this path. Maybe you need to ask yourself, where are you in the valley of suffering? Do you still feel that God is gone entirely? Are you acknowledging his character, but you think he won't come to save you? Are you stuck in the cycle of going over your pain, but never pouring it out to God? Or are you ready to lift your eyes to the cross and hear the Son of God cry out those words for you? If we're in the valley, we have to ask ourselves, whether we're in it yet or not, how will I respond to the valley of suffering? Will I focus inward in despair? Or will I follow the example of the cross and look to Christ who suffered for me, the God who came to my rescue? Let's pray.